what is at the core of the university? What are the most important values that differentiate this institution from other institutions in society? And for me, that core is academic freedom, free speech, the idea that we're a place apart where you have a constant contestation of ideas. There's point, there's counterpoint, there's testing, there's evaluation. And ultimately, the belief is through that kind of interaction, one gets to a deeper level of truth. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Over the past weeks and months, a lot of thinkers and writers and intellectuals have made big projections about the kinds of changes that the coronavirus will bring about. Some people think that it is sure to be the end of globalization. Others go even further. They say that our social lives will remain unrecognizable in the future. That this may be the end of bars and cafes and restaurants and parties and mass gatherings. Well, I have to say that I'm skeptical about some of these projections. Think of the immense suffering that people experienced during World War I and then the Spanish influenza, which killed more people by some accounts than the preceding war. A lot of young people with healthy immune systems were dying in field hospitals across the United States, across the world. And yet, a few years after those tragedies, we entered the Roaring Twenties, a decade famous, infamous, for its lavish lifestyle and the enjoyment that people took in all of these activities, in all of these bars and restaurants and parties and mass gatherings. The Roaring Twenties are not alone. Again and again, humans have been visited by terrible bouts of pestilence, some of them, like the Black Death, much more deadly than the current tragedy we're living through. And again and again, humans insisted on becoming sociable again. If you look at places ravished by terrorism, places ravished by incredibly high levels of criminality, human beings are clearly willing to take on immense risks in order to have a social life. So there will still be cafes and restaurants and parties five or ten years from now, I promise. I promise because we're human. Now, there is much better historical precedent for believing that bouts of disease have very deep political and economic consequences. Just think of the arguments that the death of up to a third of the population in certain European countries in the late Middle Ages brought about the end of serfdom. But a lot of the prognostifications make a simple mistake. The argument mostly takes the form of saying the pandemic proves that X is irrational and therefore X will cease. But as social scientists have known for a long time, that's not how the world works. Often, people are incapable of reforming and changing and challenging institutions that bring real disadvantages to them because they have trouble acting together 
or they can't agree on what to replace those institutions with. Now, those kinds of constraints are going to remain just as relevant in the times of corona. Imagine that a CEO decides that he's afraid of a similar kind of shock 10 or 20 or 30 years down the line, and therefore he wants to bring back production to the United States. Well, the pressure on prices is going to remain as strong after the pandemic as it is now. And if just-in-time production procedures allow his competitors to produce the same product more cheaply, then this far-sighted policy, which may put both consumers and with corporations into a healthy state 20 or 30 years from now, is going to risk its survival next month or next year. And so I think many CEOs will ultimately desist. This doesn't mean that there's not going to be significant changes. I do think that many governments will try and ensure that critical goods can be produced domestically. I do think there will be some changes, perhaps as big as the abolition of serfdom, that don't follow this rational trajectory, that contemporaries like us trying to write the first draft of history are completely incapable of predicting. That is always possible. But when it comes to many of the predictions people are making, I have to say that I find them to be facile, insufficiently concerned with some of the structural features that make change so difficult. But now it's a special pleasure for me to introduce somebody I've come to know and respect and admire over the last years, Ron Daniels, the president of Johns Hopkins University. Many universities today can feel like huge and in many ways impressive, but also rather meaningless entities, entities that don't have a strong sense of a purpose and entities, frankly, whose leaders don't even try to impose a vision or a purpose. On them. Well, Ron Daniels has been thinking very carefully about what role universities like Johns Hopkins have to play in the modern world. And he makes a very interesting set of arguments about how universities and other kinds of civic associations should help to fortify our liberal democracies against populism. That's the main meat of a conversation, but of course, we also covered some of the unique challenges that universities face in the time of a coronavirus and fought a little bit together about what the future might bring for higher education in the time after COVID-19. Ron Daniels, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Delighted to be here, Yasha. Thanks for the opportunity. So you are the, the president, not just of a large and important university, but of a university that has a huge hospital and that is doing some of the cutting edge research about this pandemic right now. What are some of the challenges you're dealing with at the moment in terms of both making sure that this educational system can help us solve this problem and remain financially and in other ways viable once the pandemic is over? So, you know, the challenges are multiple and some of them are quite daunting. First and foremost, there is just the challenge of making sure that in the activities that we conduct, 
that we're making sure that we're not creating undue risk for our faculty, our staff, our students, the people who are typically active in the life of the university. And so, you know, you have a paramount health and safety concern that you've got to carry into a number of different domains of your activity. In the case of Johns Hopkins, our commitment to public health and safety, coupled with the guidance that we're getting from state authorities, required us to suspend our on-site research activity. And for Johns Hopkins, which for more than 35 years has been the largest year-over-year recipient of federal research funding, the decision to suspend on-campus research activity because of the threats of exposure from the pandemic was a really difficult one, but nonetheless one that we took with alacrity. And you know, in all my years of higher education, seeing how quickly the institution moved to uh, suspend that activity and do so in a way that was really mindful of the importance of preserving samples and agents and other parts of the research enterprise. It was really amazing that we got that done as effectively as we did. Similarly, the decision to suspend our on-campus instructional activity for undergraduate, graduate, and professional students, a very difficult decision, but not one that we really had much choice about. And then moving almost overnight to a mass delivery of virtual classes, large section, small section, and so forth. That, again, was quite amazing how we were able to do that. So, you know, those those were significant challenges. And then for the, you know, health system, you know, the decision to suspend elective clinical activity and to really bear down on preparing for the COVID pandemic and the patients that we expected to see in that setting was also very, very challenging. In all these ways, lots of challenges, and each one of those decisions coupled by a non-trivial disruption of your traditional mission and, to magnify matters, a significant loss of revenue associated with each and every one of those activities. So all of that is very challenging, but at the same time that you're dealing with those transitions and trying to affect them responsibly, you're also in a moment when people are desperate for the leadership, the contributions of the research-intensive university. And so the interest that the public at large, domestically, internationally, has had in sound public health guidance, the tracking that we have done in terms of the level of infections or mortality, the pandemic internationally, domestically, there's just been very, very deep hunger for that kind of guidance sound public health guidance as to how one thinks about the decisions politicians and other government officials have to make uh, in light of the characteristics of the pandemic. Again, that's something that people are looking to universities for, and we have a very important role to play in that. And then, of course, you know, just daily, the intense coverage and interest in the availability of new therapeutics, of understanding the core disease processes that are associated with corona, the possibilities for a vaccine, what kinds of challenges lie in the face of that. Again, there's a thirst for direction from the university. And here again is a role that we feel that we have a very significant role to discharge. There's a lot of talk at the moment about how, you know, Corona is going to change everything. And I'm writing a piece at the moment that's challenging some of those ideas. I think, for example, that human beings have insisted on being sociable throughout history, even in the very dangerous circumstances, and certainly in the wake of pandemics that were probably more deadly 
So the idea that people will not go back to join cafes and restaurants and so on uh, strikes me as unrealistic. But there's also particularly been talk about it challenging what some see as an unsustainable model of higher education, that actually the move to online classes is going to be accelerated, that the model of undergraduate education where people go and spend four years on a sort of all-inclusive resort holiday with obviously doing lots of work and so on as well, is going to be a thing of the past. How radically do you think America's university system is going to change over the next 10 years? And how radically should it change? So I think that coronavirus in a lot of ways is a stress test for American higher education. And I think there's no doubt that the pandemic is going to accelerate some of the transitions that were well underway before we had to contend with the virus and, of course, being amplified during the course of this. So I think that, for instance, looking to ways in which we use technology more effectively, more aggressively, the role for telemedicine, as we have found that our clinicians within the health system are unable to see a lot of patients in their offices because of the limitations on elective activity, that's been a significant migration to telemedicine. And, you know, it turns out that a lot of clinicians are feeling that and patients are feeling that that works quite well. Similarly, for a lot of our students and faculty who have migrated en masse to online instruction, people are finding that there are some courses, some types of discussion, some kinds of pedagogical activity where the format is really effective. And it's, in some sense, even better in some ways than the kind of experience we'd have, for instance, in a large lecture classroom with several hundred students. But having said that, there's still, I think, a deep appreciation that the mode of instruction is deeply limited and frustrating in terms of the kind of experience you're having. So that while it may work well in some kinds of educational contexts, there are a whole host of other contexts where faculty and students are like are saying, I understand why we had to do this now because of the decisions to shelter in place during the early stages of the pandemic. But we really miss something from the serendipitous conversations before and after class. We miss, even though when you're looking at people's faces on a screen, we miss the kinds of social cues that you get when you're seated across from the table. And there's a more easier, natural interaction. So I think that seeing this moment is one in which there's going to be a significant disruption that changes everything, I think grossly overstates what's going to happen. There are things that will change as a consequence of this, as I said before, some things that will be accelerated that were already changing beforehand. But I think in some ways, it will make us that much more appreciative of some of the things that we've not been able to do over the last two months and make us desperate to try and get back to those on-campus, direct face-to-face interactions. And I think in that respect, a lot of what we uh, have given up during this time will come back with a vengeance. And so I don't think these are permanent changes. These are changes that we've had to concede in the moment, but I think we will find our way back to a lot of the traditional learning modalities and forms of interaction because they're just so powerful and rewarding. That strikes me as right. First of all, I think this is sort of a test of things like teleworking, but a bias test. So it will accelerate the shift towards allowing employees of companies to work from home when it makes sense. 
but it will also remind people of the value of being together in one place and having informal conversations, being able to brainstorm in a more spontaneous way. And of course, what I mean by the bias test is that it so happens that we're testing whether people can telework in an environment where a lot of them also have to take care of small children and so on. So even if teleworking actually worked quite well, I wonder whether this pandemic will slow rather than hasten the transition towards it. In higher education, it's taught me through the classes I've had to move online this term and some online courses I'm teaching, that you can have really meaningful connection online and that there's a real value to that. I also wonder whether that is limited to a certain set of students who are already very, very talented, who already have had a good academic grounding in an on-campus university, who are very self-motivated and driven. And those are the students who traditionally do very well on edX and Coursera and all of those other kinds of platforms. But I think, you know, for a lot of students who are in need of real assistance get through an education at big state universities, at community colleges, the in-person element will continue to be very important. And of course, what the best campuses and universities do is to connect people and allow them to be creative together in all kinds of ways beyond the classroom. And the people who are fortunate enough to be able to access those institutions are not going to give up on that. So I wonder whether the challenge will be biggest to some of the universities that frankly are least good at doing their job, to some of the universities that are very expensive residential colleges that don't actually provide students with an excellent education, but it might produce a flight to quality, which puts both some of the countries and world's best universities in a better condition and some of those universities, like say Arizona State University, that are just doing an excellent job at providing a high quality education to a large number of students at a decent price. So as I said, you know, I think that trends that were underway before COVID get magnified um, during this moment, and so they'll continue apace. But, you know, if you're asking the question, do I think an institution like Johns Hopkins will be forever changed by this, and that the institution that won't happen immediately, but the institution that reopens is fundamentally different than the institution that suspended its activity a few months ago? I just don't think so. And I think, you know, to your point, there's a real appreciation of how important the totality of the educational experience on a campus is that has really been underscored by this experience, how much we're really missing from not being able to just, as I said before, have very casual, serendipitous conversations to be challenged in ways that we wouldn't have anticipated that, again, in the structure of a Zoom one-hour discrete seminar or classroom that is lost. And as well as all the other tapestry of interactions that students have with each other that they have with graduate students, with faculty, again, all of that has been lost. We've really you know, reduced our educational experience to an irreducible core to get through this time. And so I think there's a real appreciation of all those other aspects. The other thing that you raised that I think is really important is the extent to which that the people who may be thriving in this online environment, and I don't know if anyone's truly thriving, I think people are being educated and they're learning But I think, again, as comparison to the campus experience, I think we have to acknowledge that this is a second best world. But even there, how much of a second best world that is varies by the circumstances, dramatically by the circumstances in which students find themselves. So students who are first-generation students from low-income backgrounds who, instead of being at a university where, in some sense, there's a real equality of circumstances when they're here. It's not perfect. 
but there's a substantial equality of experience that students have when they're on a campus in our dormitories and so forth, that when they're back home, all of a sudden, those disparities in circumstances become magnified. And so a student who is at home in a setting where there's substantial financial instability, where there may be very little private space, where there's not good internet connectivity, all of a sudden, the role that the university plays in trying to tamp down those differences becomes compromised. And so, again, I think this is a very important way in which we're quite anxious to restore the kind of programming that we had before, the experience that we had before, recognizing that there's some places in which I think, quite frankly, faculty who have never been online before saying, you know, for some parts of my course, it's not a bad thing to use this modality. And maybe instead of doing a lecture where I'm just conveying stock of knowledge, maybe it's better that I do that online. And then when I meet with the students, I can have more of a discussion where they have mastered the fundamentals that I was trying to create in a lecture setting. So I, I think we have to allow for that. But I think fundamentally, we're going to look very similar coming out of this as we did going into it. So I guess the thing that makes me uncertain or torn about this is that I agree with you entirely that five or ten years from now universities will be significantly changed hopefully in many ways for the better but they're not going to be you know completely radically different unrecognizable places but how soon is that going to be by what time do you think that universities might be able to resume in-person activity is it a few months from now is it a year from now at what point might that be feasible and how will you as a university leader go about making that decision? So it starts off with a clear commitment to health and safety, students, faculty, and staff. So whatever you got to do has to be prudent and responsible. And this is no time for cowboy behavior. You've got lives at stake and you've got to behave with a clear recognition that this is a very serious disease. It's obviously a serious disease for people who are older and with pre-existing conditions. But, you know, day-by-day learning, even for young children and even, you know, for students who are in the 18 to 24 bracket, that though the probability is low, if you do get infected and you're unfortunate in having a strong reaction, it can be a very serious disease. And so uh, for all those reasons, one can't take the decision to resume activity lightly. Having said that, this could go on for some time. It may be, as some of the experts say, 18 to 24 months till we get a vaccine and we truly have the level of protection that we need to resume full activity. Maybe we get lucky and the vaccine comes before that or there's some good therapeutics that come before that. But fundamentally, this could be a very long time. And in that context, it seems to me the way in which we're operating now is not something that I could see sustaining over a two-year period. And so trying to marshal all of our imagination, our expertise, creativity, and so forth to think about what it would look like to have a prudent stage resumption of activity that might even be as early as this fall on our campuses, I think becomes a real imperative. Again, there is a significant deficit in terms of what our students are taking from this experience. And so while one had to conceive that it was important to do this 
over the last couple of months as we were trying to really reduce significantly the trajectory of the pandemic. As we move along in this pandemic, I think it's going to mean that we have opportunities to think about creative use of social distancing, testing, creating new norms of behavior, invoking technology with apps and so forth to help us do tracing. I think there's a number of instruments that are available to us that if used responsibly can make this much more manageable for us to consider some staged reintroduction of life onto our campuses. Am I fully confident we can do that with every aspect of our mission by early September. I think it's absolutely clear we won't be able to do it all for Labor Day. But can we imagine that there's going to be a staged resumption of life and even working on the issues around what residential life will look like? I think that's in the realm of the possible. And of course, our responsibility right now is to plan for the possibility that we can do these things, to think about how one ensures proper protection of everyone who's involved in that activity, faculty, staff, and students, and then to recognize that we're going to have to be nimble if it turns out, as in the case of the 1918 pandemic, there's another significant surge of infection come the fall, then we'll obviously have to revisit those plans. But I don't want to concede at this point that it's inevitable that we have a very long hiatus where our activities, our on-campus activities are suspended. Great. Let me ask you about a set of things which the podcast is normally concerned about when we're not trying to deal with a global pandemic, which is to do with the rise of populism and the crisis of liberal democracy. What can universities do in order to shore up our political system against the threat that these populist forces pose? What can universities like Johns Hopkins do in order to ensure that citizens are committed to some of the values of liberal democracy? You know, when I think about uh, where we are in terms of our evolution as a society, and in particular, how well we are embodying the values of liberal democracy, it's no surprise to you that I think a lot about the role that universities play in that enterprise. And here, you know, I think it starts off with a recognition that although the university wasn't implicated at the start of the formation of the ideas of liberal democracy, those ideas of the Enlightenment and so forth and how they're manifested in political uh, rules preceded the widespread development of the university. But nevertheless, I think we've actually evolved to become an indispensable institution in liberal democracy. And I think about that in four principal ways in which we have a very central role to play in undergirding liberal democracy. One, I think we are very important places for embracing ideas of reason, the role of fact, of principle. And those commitments make us, I think, a place that serves to check, to challenge dogmas, perceptions, claims that are made by other institutions, other actors in society. I often think of the university as a place apart. 
We have a level of protection very much reflected in terms of our tenure rules and so forth so that we can say to our faculty and students, you have the confidence to challenge received wisdom, to play a checking role in ensuring that the decisions that are made in society are made on a factual basis, are made in a spirit of reason. So I think that's a place in which the university has a critical role to play in liberal democracy. Secondly, universities are these incredible institutions when it comes to taking people of merit and giving them the opportunity to transcend their economic or social circumstances. We are just this very impressive ladder to opportunity when we do our job well. And again, to the extent that social mobility is important in fostering commitments to liberal democracy and to good government generally, universities are central institutions. I don't think, in fact, that there's a more powerful institution in society in being able to allow people to realize their true promise. So again, this is another fundamental role for the university. I think universities have an important role to play as microcosms of society and creating places where we can model the best of liberal democracy, can find ways to achieve compromise, sometimes even elusive consensus in the decisions we make, but essentially to be microcosms of democracy and to model the kinds of behaviors we want our students upon graduation to take with them into the world at large. And then finally, I think Universities are really important because of the role they play in educating students for democracy. And I think we have a, an important, I think often neglected role to play in civic education and equipping students with the capacity to understand liberal democracy and then to advocate for it, to model it when they uh, leave the institution. But again, I see that as another role. So when you put all these pieces together, we are a very significant, indeed, I've argued, an indispensable actor in liberal democratic society. And so when one looks at the challenges that we're facing now in terms of diminished social trust, the high degrees of polarization, the antipathy to government, the lack of willingness to compromise across divides, rising inequality, one can manifest the very social phenomena, which I know you have thought a lot about and written so elegantly on, when you look at all of those issues, this is where I think the world needs more from the university. We're such an important bulwark for liberal democracy, not the only one, but a really important institution. And I think this time behooves us to double down in terms of how we contribute to that enterprise. Uh, I have to say that sounds very, very convincing to me, but I want to probe each of these areas a little bit further, and I'm going to try and do that in ascending levels of skepticism. So the first one is about universities as a model for what society as a whole might look like and how society as a whole might function. What is Hopkins doing concretely or what do you see other universities doing in order to foster that kind of exchange? I know that, for example, there's a growing tendency for people, for incoming students to connect via social media before they even arrive on campus to request to live with each other. And some of that a sort of traditional American role of a campus where, you know, the kid from Queens is put together with a farm kid from Montana and they sort of develop more mutual understanding and so on. 
doesn't happen because they just seek people out who are like them and they're sort of within the social bubble from the beginning. How can universities make sure that even if they, as they become more diverse, that diversity is actually an element of students' lived reality? It's a really good point, uh, Yasha, and it's something that I've given a lot of thought to over the years in various academic leadership positions that I've had. It starts, I think, with a clear acknowledgement of the concern you raised. That is, to the extent that many universities have been concerned about barriers to entry into the university to create classes that are representative that, again, correct for the historical shortcomings of the institution and being unable to recruit or unwilling to recruit students from various underrepresented groups, whether that's defined in socioeconomic terms or in racial or ethnic terms, religious terms, and so forth. I think we've come a long way in terms of saying we've got to worry about the composition But your point is the right one. Composition alone does not mean that we are embodying the values of diversity. That is to say that if you have heterogeneity, but you don't have cross-pollination, if you don't have discussions, if there isn't some kind of interaction across those groups, I think you have not realized the full promise of the university. And so for me, thinking about how, as we have moved to create a more representative university, how we now harvest the benefits of true diversity, and by that I mean a real sense of dynamic pluralism, I think that requires lots of intentional activity. So, you cite the issue of should students, uh, before they even come into the freshman class, should they be able to select their roommates? I think there's a strong argument that they shouldn't that we should do random assignments. In some institutions, Bowdoin, for instance, they've actually moved beyond just random assignment of students to shared dorm rooms. And they've actually intentionally created shared dorms where the students are from very different backgrounds. So they're being very purposeful about that. Duke University recently decided that it would no longer allow students to select their roommates. And again, that's a project that's being evaluated to see whether, again, to the point that we're talking about here, the benefits of pluralism, a real exchange are happening across the divide. I think that that spirit should carry into a number of other parts of the university's activities. I think, for instance, the way in which you even uh, consider the design of social spaces for the students. We should clearly provide students with the opportunity for so-called in-group solidarity, for moments when students define themselves by shared ethnic, racial interests, where they feel, particularly for minorities, that they need a moment of solidarity, a bonding moment within that group. But then to use Bob Putnam's terms, you've got to think about how we get bridging activity and how we force students, although that at one moment they may be at Hillel or in the Newman Center on their campuses, they step outside of that and then they have interactions with students from completely different groups. And so again, I think design of the campus should really play that role in trying to mix it all up. And then I think you've got to start working on ways in which even in the kinds of extracurricular speakers you have and the ways that you set up four or four discussions within the student body, that you're actually being quite intentional about trying to present a multiplicity of views and to get discussions going across the various divides. So that, again, for most campuses, particularly when there are these moments when the campuses are really riven by a controversial speaker 
that comes on a campus is typically it one single group that's bringing in a speaker that is to their taste, but you're not creating the conditions right at the outset where you're trying to create panels or debates or discussions where different views are being presented and that you have a number of different students within the room. So I think this sense of creating more opportunities for different students to be in the room, whether it's in the dorm room or the lecture hall or the cafeteria, how you're going to mix it up and ensure we get the benefits of pluralism. And that sense that you're challenged, you're being confronted with someone else's experience that's not your own and you can learn from it, I think is very much the work of the contemporary university. We need to do that. So there is a sort of strange hybrid nature to American universities. The primary mission is to educate students, to challenge them, to make them grow as thinkers and citizens. But of course, they also play home to students for years in most cases. And so I feel like that battle has played out in different ways on campuses over the last years. On the one hand, students understandably say certain ideas that are being presented to me in the place where I'm living for four years that make me feel devalued are challenged to me and I'm upset if I don't feel like the university is upset by them or is protecting me from them. And of course, on the other hand, part and parcel of liberal democracy is a commitment to free speech and part and parcel of the task of an education is to challenge people, make them feel uncomfortable. How can universities, how can university presidents ensure that we stand up very forthrightly and without qualification and excuse for the value of free speech, but also actually get students into the fold of understanding that this is not a form of disrespect, that it is not a a lack of concern uh, for the real fears they have. So, you know, this is something for me, Yasha, I uh, have been very focused on over the last several years, and particularly after the spasm a few years ago of disinventations and lectures uh, by controversial speakers that were uh, shut down and so forth. And for me, you got to ask the question of what is at the core of the university? What are the most important values that differentiate this institution from other institutions in society and require protection? And for me, that core is academic freedom, free speech, the idea that we're a place apart where you have a constant contestation of ideas. There's point, there's counterpoint, there's testing, there's evaluation. And ultimately, the belief is through that kind of interaction, one gets to a deeper level of truth. And that is at the core of the research-intensive university. It is actually, to my mind, the defining feature of the research-intensive university. If you squander that, you squander your legitimacy. And so if you recognize that is the place in which you really do have to be passionate and clear in your conviction about that particular role for the university, it starts with, first and foremost, educating every student that comes into the institution about why this matters. And in fact, I think we were somewhat blithe about this, that we just sort of assume because we live in a world where we understand how important this is, that it would be self-evident to the students who come into the university and that you know they would have been acquainted with these ideas, the argument before getting here, that this is something that we would have thought, you know, the value of free speech and the role that it plays in American society would have been well understood. And yet, 
I think we learned that that is not the case. I taught a course this past year and I asked in a student seminar with about 18 students in it, asked how many students had serious civics education before coming to university and really were well acquainted with the case for free speech and understood why that value is so critical for vibrant liberal democracy. And three or four students said that they had. The rest of the class never had it. So in this respect, what we do now is doing student orientation. There is a a moment in which we take the entire class and we spend a few hours and discuss the importance of the university and these ideals and how they're respected. And to your point, that when there is an exchange of ideas that makes people feel uncomfortable or sometimes diminished, that that is in some sense the environment in which the university operates well is when we are made uncomfortable, when our core convictions, our beliefs, our values are being challenged. Now, again, you know, there's obvious limits on this. I think, you know, to the extent that you have everyone, when it comes to free speech, has some line that they will ultimately draw and say, this is just such a clear species of unvarnished hate speech, that there's no truth value to the behavior whatsoever, the discussion whatsoever. I'm sympathetic to that. But what falls into that category, to my mind, is not a very broad group of discussion, of debate that we normally see on the campus. And so I think it starts with getting students to understand why this is not just merely something you tolerate, but you ought to celebrate and embrace vigorously as being a defining feature of the university. And then I think the challenge is beyond introduction is to find ways in which you can demonstrate the power of that idea to students. Instead of just thinking about free speech as being defined by those moments on campus when you have controversial speakers that are speaking to one group, I think you can also think about the ways in which the university can create panels or opportunities where there's multiple speakers from different uh, vantage points, and you're very deliberately saying, controversy, conflict of ideas, contestation is not abnormal or abhorrent, but it's what we're about. And so I think that's our work is to normalize that and to get students to see this as being one of the parts of the university experience that they're really fortunate to have. It's not just something to be tolerated or abided, but rather embraced. What about the area of social mobility? I have to say that I'm very torn on that because one of the most wonderful things that universities do is to take people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds and give them an incredible set of opportunities to develop their minds and to go out into the world and conquer. And certainly the ability of places like Johns Hopkins to attract some of the brightest minds from across the country does help to give reality to the promise of America being a land of opportunity and so on. At the same time, I sometimes wonder whether, paradoxically, the better we do that, the more we deepen the social divides in the country. So I always you know, think of a small town somewhere in the United States where sort of year after year, uh, universities like Johns Hopkins come in and they swoop up you know, the most talented people at the graduating high school class. And those people might go back for Christmas and Thanksgiving or other religious holidays, they might come and visit their parents, but they're likely never going back to those communities 
to actually live there. So aren't we deepening the divide between the metropolitan centers that most John Hopkins students end up moving to and some of the communities they're coming from, the better we do at the job of actually providing social mobility to the people who obviously deserve it. So this is an argument that I've heard in my old country, Canada, not so much about the coast versus the flyover zones, but about the power of the university, particularly the American, Canadian, European university, Western European university, and drawing people from all across the world, giving them this opportunity. And then at the end of the time that they're there, instead of going back to their home countries where they can take the benefits of that kind of learning, insight, experience, the networks they developed, they stay in the West and these metropolitan centers and they, in some sense, join the bubble instead of finding ways to penetrate it. And so I think one of the things that, to my mind, is reassuring is that although it may be true when you look at a lot of our graduates and see where they go in their first jobs after graduation at Hopkins, they do tend to go to the coast. And they tend to join into this cluster of people who have a now similar background in terms of their education achievement and so forth. But what's really interesting is to watch what happens over time. And in the years to come, it's interesting as you do the longitudinal studies, the students tend to move. And so after that first experience, they do tend to, at least some percentage, not all, but tend to migrate to their countries or cities or towns of origin. And so I think you have to concede that some element, some percentage of those students are not going back, but there are a lot that are. And more than that, I think just given what we have today in terms of ways in which we can connect through various types of media and so forth, I still think that even when you are physically located elsewhere, you still maintain ties to the communities from which you hail. So again, I think that reduces the magnitude of the loss to those communities. And at the same time, you know, I do think that we are changed as certainly as an institution, but I think as a society, when you start to bring these outlier perspectives into your community, it changes the way in which the student who comes from Manhattan or Los Angeles perceives the world. We know that empirically, that that kind of interaction does change perception. So, you know, there is another way in which society's enriched and cleavages are attenuated through this kind of interaction. So you started off by talking about the importance of research and providing facts and knowledge for society to act on. You know, we're recording this in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, and it's just astonishing what a role Johns Hopkins has played in that, even how prominent the Hopkins coronavirus website has been in providing that important factual information to people. So I think in a way that argument makes itself. At the same time, when I look at governments around the world, in the United States, but also in many other countries, it feels sort of less realistic than ever to think that all of that important fact-based research will then, in fact, inform how governments function. So, you know, is the model where academics do this important research and they invest a lot more than we did perhaps in the past in disseminating those findings, is that realistic in an age of populism and widespread disdain for the findings of experts and academics? So, Yash, I go back and forth on this and thinking that corona pandemic represents an opportunity for us to recalibrate 
the way in which we're perceived in society and other times just thinking we're truly not making a dent in some of these longstanding problems in terms of the antipathy to expertise, the sense that everyone can have their own facts and there's fake facts of all of these things that you and others have spent considerable time talking about. I guess on the days when I'm thinking about this with some sense of equanimity, I think that this moment has really represented a time in which, you know, to your point, expertise, facts, the independence of universities have proven themselves in a very powerful way. Ultimately, political leaders, government officials of various stripes will make decisions around how they respond in policy terms to the challenges of the virus. But nevertheless, we can track in a very real way what the effects are on the population that are being governed by these rules. And that's quite striking to me, the extent to which the university can at least do that. And I think the university, and we've been very deliberate at Hopkins and I think other universities as well, are really encouraging faculty to see this as a moment when your responsibilities to feed into public debate, to make the science accessible, to be realistic in terms of what is and what is not possible, I think helps at least in terms of creating conditions in which one hopes good public policy can be made. So I think in some sense, we have uh, contributed to the creation of an environment that I think is more conducive to sound public policy. On the other hand, our ability to cut through the various levels of polarization, of deep ideological commitments to certain positions, I think ultimately has to be viewed through a realistic lens. You know, just by virtue of the fact that we map out what sound public policy should be, there's no assurance that politicians will ultimately hew to our recommendations. And maybe in some sense, we have to recognize that though we can offer technical advice and do our best to condition it by certain political considerations, ultimately, the good politician is taking the advice of scientific advisors, but thinking about what is politically feasible. And so it's not the fact that we don't have a one-to-one translation of our recommendations around sound public health across every state of the country and every country of the world shouldn't be surprising because sometimes there's, in truth, you know, competing considerations that may force some attenuation of the relevance of that particular insight. But I think it's really striking, though, for all that and for the frustrations we have with certain governmental actors in this country and internationally and how they're handling the pandemic. I think it's quite striking first to see the number of political leaders that are moving in a way that hews very closely to the consensus viewpoint among public health experts. I mean, even the fact that we at quite catastrophic economic costs, politicians across a number of different regions of the world and across different political approaches have found it desirable to substantially reduce the amount, or if not entirely lock down the amount of activity that's taking place in society, is quite striking. I mean, that in some sense reflects at least some acknowledgement of the role of the public health advice. And if you look in this country, the number of states that, for instance, are picking up advice that comes from our Bloomberg School of Public Health and the Center for Health Security. And if you in very closely to the ways in which they think about a stage resumption of activity, again, there's very close alignment. 
And then for those governments that are not completely embracing this approach, I think one has to say that as a university, and I think about the university sector at large, I think we've played an important role of at least disciplining, challenging those judgments and those decisions in a way that has perhaps slowed down precipitous decisions that would be much more damaging. If I think about just the vicissitudes, particularly in the federal government in this country, and the number of times the administration seemed to have been moving very quickly towards relaxation of the rules or suspension of the task force and resumption of the task force, a number of these decisions that were worrisome, it is interesting that the cluster of actors, universities, experts, media, competing political parties and so forth, have been able to cause some rethinking. So that not every decision is being made in perfect alignment with what we would see as ideal doesn't, to my mind, diminish at least the significant effect that we're having at this moment. That strikes me as right. I think it's actually too early to know how we will think of this pandemic in retrospect. I think, and obviously that depends on what happens in the coming months after our conversation, it's absolutely possible that we'll think of it as a giant instance of failure of governments and the needless deaths of millions of people around the world. It's also possible, I think, that we will end up with a much lower death toll than we would have done without some of these extreme actions. And that 20 or 40 years from now, we will look at this as a historic moment of humanity, that for all of the mistakes and all of the flaws and all of the venality and all of the egotism that's on display at the moment at every level of society and government, we actually managed to save a lot of people. And hopefully that will be the story that deserves to be told. Just one last question, which is on your fourth point, the importance of democracies in educating citizens of liberal democracies. You know, I've been struck looking around at some of the very prominent people from around the world who have come to U.S. colleges and universities in the last years and the hope was that they would be imbued with the principles of liberal democracy, but often they went back to their home countries and they became senior officials in authoritarian governments or they became dictators. Um, now, that has always been the case to some extent, but I think it is striking to what extent people can now come and get a liberal arts education, get an undergraduate degree at one of the top US colleges and leave without those political values even having been challenged. So how effective can institutions like Johns Hopkins be in ensuring that they allow free inquiry, but they also push people to engage with traditions of liberal democracy in such a way that they become committed citizens of liberal democracies, committed advocates for liberal democracy? So, Yasha, the point you raise is, again, really important in terms of asking the question of when our graduates leave, and particularly those who come from countries with different traditions around democracy and perhaps moving towards a better or deeper understanding and commitment to liberal democracy, perhaps sadly work uh, moving away from it, as we know is very much the nature of this time. And to the extent that these graduates go home and are not playing the role that we would hope, 
I think it is fair to ask the question of how well we have done our job in terms of equipping them with a passion for an understanding of the importance of this ideal. Now, you know, that's not something just, of course, for graduates who come from abroad and who have a different place on the democracy scale than does the United States. I think even within this country, one can ask the question, how well have we done in terms of imbuing our own American students with a deeper understanding of the importance of this idea and ways of actualizing it? And so I think we have to acknowledge that we have over the decades, if not the centuries, thought at different times in different ways about what is our responsibility in this domain. And I think if one looks at, you know, the original founding of this country and the, you know, the small colleges that were created uh, in the wake of the formation of the union, uh, you do see a very conscious effort to try and at least acquaint uh, students at that time with the grand Western liberal tradition. Um, over time, that commitment seems to change. And there are moments when, particularly in times of international peril, during the world wars, during the Cold War, where the university recognizes that it has a responsibility to really be intentional about conveying an understanding of liberal democracy, the ways in which it is embedded in institutions and certain types of behaviors, and trying to give that to our students. But you can see there's drift from it. That sense of commitment to you know, the power of the liberal democratic ideal, I think, has waned a bit. Maybe in part, it's because we have ourselves lost confidence in its importance or have been focused on its various frailties in terms of how the ideals are actually implemented in reality. And to the extent that these flaws are identified, I think some people perhaps have said that the enterprise itself isn't worth pursuing. And so I think maybe there's a kind of a confusion there between concern about the ideal and the instantiation of it, and to the extent that we haven't done well in actualizing it, then people perhaps have abandoned the project or aren't as passionate about the project. I think that's an outlier view, but I think it's one that, you know, that in part perhaps creates a sense of ambivalence. You know, it also is a moment in which a lot of people within the university kind of assume that someone else is doing this. And maybe it's an important ideal, but someone else, high schools have been doing it, or families do this, or other institutions do that, so it's not our job. And I think in all these ways, you and coming back to the question you posed, you know, should we worry about our graduates, whether going back home to foreign countries with different democratic traditions, weaker democratic traditions, or even our own country? I think here we have to be more forceful about saying that this is a really difficult idea to foster, to incorporate into institutions, to keep resilient. And if that's right, that the university has a role to play in trying to help shepherd the idea and to make it stronger. And I think here's where everything from thinking about the resurrection of a formal civics program to projects like the one you're involved with at the SNF Agora Institute, where basically we're trying to bring research and educational activities around these ideas of the challenges to liberal democracy and the growth of polarization and discord to be something that's really galvanizing because we think it's something worth fighting for.
Ron Daniels, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. <laughs>